Greetings, everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, let's begin by making sure you know the name of people nearby you. That's the star custom. So turn around, look around, make sure you know a name. You look like a steward. Two stewards. Hi, Jesse. Great. Okay. Jesse, there's room over here. Oh, no, no, someone's sitting there. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> he may be bringing Linder Fine. All right. <clears throat> Last week we started with a chant, and uh, we thought we'd do that again this week. Yeah. And if anyone wonders why I sit on a stool and Jonathan doesn't, it's because Jonathan tends to stand through much of the class, and I don't. And when he stands and I sit on the stool, we're about the same height then. <laughs> <laughs> You're tall. <clears throat> um, so last week, uh, we said that we were going to start with just a little brief silence and a chant um, to sort of settle in each week. And someone said, could we do the same chant that we did last week? Because I can't remember it. Um, so Jonathan and I said, yeah, let's, let's settle in with that again. And the words of it were simply, open my heart. And uh, my feeling was that this is a lot of the work we're actually doing together. We're opening our hearts um, across traditions, across old dividing lines, opening our hearts to um, each other's wounds, uh, and so it seems like an apt uh, chant. And there are two parts to it, so we'll just learn it again. Uh, the, it's the same words, but two, there are actually three or even more different harmonies that you can add in. And you might discover one you want to add in on your own. Feel free. There might be harmonizers here. <laughs> but, let's see if I can start it high enough that we can get the whole line in. Open my heart. Maybe I need to go lower. Let's try it there. Open my heart. Open my heart. And that repeats. Open my heart. Open my heart. Open my heart. Open my heart. And the second is. Open my heart, 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 open my heart. And there is a third line, if anyone wants to try to add it in, feel free. It goes, open my heart. How does it go? That's the first part. Yeah. Open my heart. No. 
Open my heart, open my heart, open my heart, open my heart. And it goes back up. That's why you've got to start the others okay. high enough so that can go. Open my heart, 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 open my heart. Okay, so let's begin with just a few uh, moments of silence. And we'll begin the first line of the chant, and people feel free to add and layer in as you're so moved. And then as the chant dies down, we'll just rest in the silence for a few moments. <clears throat> first, just taking a moment to notice your breath, this constant gift that we're given. Breath and Spirit of God moving through us. <clears throat> and to notice your heartbeat. The one heart of God beating uniquely in each of our hearts. Open my heart. 
And while we sit in the silence for just a few moments more, you might try anchoring your awareness in your heart by imagining that you are breathing through your heart. Letting your breath anchor your awareness in your body in the center of your chest. Feeling your heart open, expanded. Last week we began by asking Jewish people what they loved about being Jewish, about Jewish practice, about Judaism, and asking the Christians here what they loved about Christianity, about being Christians, about Christian practice. And that was, and we, we, we made a list. And reflecting upon it afterwards, uh, uh, Matthew and I both agreed that um, it was a great way to start by identifying what we identify positively with. And then it raised all kinds of questions. One of the questions that uh, a lot of Jewish people have for Christians, I know I've, it's a question I've always asked and wanted to ask and in recent years have started asking, is um, what does it mean to you as a Christian, not as a doctrine or as a creed, but what is your experience of having a personal relationship with Jesus, right? And I think that's, or, yeah, that was the question. It's like, for Jews, that's like a really interesting question for me, for many, right? And we thought we might start with that. Do you want to respond to that right away? Please do. So what does it mean, yeah, to say, if you're a Christian, you've got a relationship with Jesus, or you love Jesus? And Jonathan and I, we chatted about it, and Jonathan said, you know, we really don't talk about our prophets in the same way. I've got a personal relationship with Isaiah or Malachi. Um, and so, yeah, Christians, Barbara, jump in. So, when I was reflecting on this question at the end, we were talking about that. It's something like love or God. It's very, it, you can't define it very well, so I'm going to attempt, um, because it's such a mystery and it's an ongoing experience, so it, it's not static. But um, from the past, there was more of a sense of Jesus as object and me as subject. And as I maybe matured in my faith or just in the process of unfolding, it's become more where Jesus is interior and there's a subject to subject. And it's sense that there is both a yearning, an I, thou, beloved, but there's also then a sense of a stillness and just being nestled in deep love. And so there's an intimacy and an infinite at the same time. And, and there's a sense of where there's a palpable aliveness where um, there's a, it's a strong presence and even if I am not aware of it or I don't feel it, I just know, you know, Christ is there. And there's also a sense, so there's that alive quality, so maybe you could call it the risen Christ, but there's also the sense of the more I process in this and progress, I don't know what any part of progress, but 
as I journey this, this road, I'm also more aware of the crucified Christ, a sense of a deeper awareness of suffering in the world and in creation, and where there's a sense that I'm being called within, without, to embrace suffering, to be a, when I'm more empty and open and available, that Christ or the suffering God, that there's a touching of um, humanity where I can be actually the heart, the eyes, the hands of Christ helping to transform um, wounds into greater love. I don't know if that... That was so, that was any, so articulate. Before yeah. any other Christians respond, do any of the Jewish folk here want to respond to that, that description? Yeah, Jonathan. Um, for, I have a relationship with God. Um, now, that may immediately um, have some of us, as is our nature, saying, oh, well, I know what that means, and that's not the God I believe in. You know, I, I rejected that God. But when I say I have a relationship with God, I have a relationship with an interiority, with a sense of grandeur, with it's not a personal deity mm -hmm. for me, but I've learned to call it God because it nestled, I nestled in that. Yes. In that uh, and so um, it's interesting to me to listen and, and see, say, well, what's, is that, how is that different from my, from my relationship that I've nurtured and developed and been graced with over the years? Um, and I think we then move into the realm of, of metaphors, of cultural mm -hmm. metaphors. Uh, but each cultural metaphor has its certain <laughs> strengths and emphasis. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when I've spoken with Catholics in particular, and they talk about suffering as a virtue, uh, not exactly. Um, the that um, I find it confusing. <laughs> um, uh, I uh, and so I, and I'm interested listening to the idea of the different the different um, uh, on the prism of what Christ is the suffering Christ the risen Christ the baby Jesus mm -hmm. you know there the, there's so many ways at it that you. It, it's interesting that way to me. So those were my thoughts, hearing what you were saying. Me too. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> Jay? Well, thank you very much for that beautiful expression. But, but, um, <laughs> but, 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 I just want to take a little bit of a different angle here, if you don't mind. It might be a bit controversial. I see a huge difference between the way the Jewish approach it and the way Christians Yes, a difference. <laughs> Reminds me when when this lady spoke of a business, Barbara. Barbara, hi Barbara. <laughs> there's, this, there's this guy, uh, Paul Bloom. I don't know if you know the name. He teaches ethics. You know the name. He teaches ethics at Yale, and he wrote some very interesting books. And one of the things, I'm I'm going somewhere here, and I'll be very short. All right, we'll take the ride. It'll be very short. He he, you know, in in, in all these ethics classes, there is always a challenge of what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing. So one of the things is that there's this little young girl, maybe eight or nine, drowning in a pool. Let's say it's your neighbor's pool or a pool um, uh, in a hotel. We, any of us in this room will be considered monsters to pass this child who's drowning. We would be the most unethical, immoral thing to pass this young child suffering. But then he goes on to say, yet, yet, 
And we feel a sense of guilt if we did nothing, and we feel a sense of um, sleepless nights if we did nothing. Yet, there's, there's thousands upon thousands of just the same types of young girls suffering, dying from hunger, from starvation. Yet, we could do nothing with that. He concluded proximity has a lot to do mm -hmm. with, with ethics. He also concludes that if you put, and, and, and this is where I'm going, and you know, this, this is a very subconscious kind of drive. If you put a face onto, onto um, a charity or a cause or an or a, or a, or a, or a, or a, um, activity, this is why if you get any kind of charity thing, you will see a picture of you know, a little puppy dog that's being abused or, right. or, or, or a kid with a cleft chin or, or, or a starving little black child. And this face does an awful lot to the to the inner drive. Mm -hmm. The proximity does yeah. an awful lot to the inner drive. So what I see, what, you know, from what Barbara was talking about, she mentioned the crucifixion, she mentioned the death, it's all images of a face. So I'm wondering, and I don't know the answer to this, is the fact that you see Christ with a face, that you see him on the cross, that you see the little baby Jesus, that you see that whole, is mm -hmm. that a pull just like seeing a girl drowning in the pool? Uh, am I... Makes it personal uh -huh, it and proximate makes personal. And, and makes it near you. Uh -huh. And there's no real face on God in the Jewish religion. It's, it's certainly an aid in devotional practice to have a face. And, and that's a lot of the language the New Testament uses, is that the God who is invisible, uh, who you know, dwells in light and accessible, the glory of the invisible God has shined in the face of Jesus. And so suddenly you can put a face on it, and it makes a more personal approach possible. Um, <clears throat> in, in Hinduism, they get this really well, that... that Brahman, ultimate reality, sort of abstract divinity, can be hard to approach relationally, devotionally. And so you have an Ishta Devata, a chosen ideal, who becomes your face of God, so that you can cultivate those relational qualities, realizing that that face is really a face of that ultimate mystery. But they, they kind of... Right, and, and as Barbara said, the, the crucifixion of suffering, and you're <clears throat> suffering, and you see it in front of you, that has a huge subconscious. Mm -hmm. And it, it puts the divine in suffering. You don't look for a God beyond suffering. God is present in human suffering. So in that image of a crucified God. Jay, that's very, that's very helpful. Because is Judaism hampered by our uh, commitment to not using images? And that would be a question to ask. You're shaking your head, Bob. Yeah, well, I'm listening to this as what I used to be as a Psychologist, you're still a psychologist. Yeah, well, <laughs> used I, to be. I won't. I'll be very unpopular here, I think, because it seems to me to have the face, to have the experience of holiness or infinite or love or empathy is a step backward. So I see it mm -hmm. as a uh, need to go to anthropomorphize something that. Uh, would interfere with my uh, love rather so, so than enhance he, he said that the, the movement towards an anthropomorphized uh, human face for deity feels like a step backwards away from infinite mystery. Uh, one way that I might uh, uh, talk about it is that it could be an intermediate stage um, and not necessarily intermediate. Let me, let me try to talk my way through this. That infinite mystery may seem unapproachable. 
to give it a human face, you can then cultivate relational qualities. Um, but then in the language of the New Testament, St. Paul talks about uh, discovering Christ within. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. So it's no longer Christ beside me, my friend. It's now uh, my backbone. You know, It's now the center of my being. And so perhaps you could see a movement there from the, the unfaced, unnameable, to the intimate relational face, to then discovering that intimacy with your, in your own core. Um, and it may be that human beings, we need all of these different approaches, and that one isn't superior, um, and that we move through different ones at different points in our life and at different times of the day. And the, Sometimes different, <coughs> and the different personalities are going to gravitate have different predilections. <laughs> and, and this has always been the case in the Christian tradition. Some people are drawn to the more abstract, in the beginning was the word, you know, this sort of cosmic sense uh, of, of Christ. Others to the very intimate, personal baby in the manger or, or just the unnameable, unknowable God. So... I guess I would like to maybe clarify it because, again, it's beyond words. You could have my experiences both at the same time. There is the, there's the infinite, you know, that's indescribable, undefinable. It's not containable. And then there's also a sense of um, a tenderness, an intimacy, uh, mm -hmm. um, a yearning for at the same time. It doesn't have to be either or. It's a both and. I understood that, and it's very beautiful. I don't see the need for the face. <laughs> and that, that, that may be that you may not have the need for I the don't. face, and another I, being We have mind. the tradition of the study of this Torah and the practice mm -hmm. of love in the Jewish tradition. And I'm saying that seems for me... To be sufficient. It should be sufficient. Is there a way that you could say the Torah becomes the face of God? I suppose. I suppose. But worshiping we'll it as too. an object, it would not be the highest way for me. Right. So even marching it around the synagogue and loving it that way is almost too much personification uh, yeah. of the object, almost. Yeah. Thank, also, you. thank you, thank you. I want so, to jump back here to Jenny. Okay, we'll get to everybody. We'll, we'll, get come, to we'll come back. We'll get, we'll get to in. everybody. I think each person has made very good points. And having grown up from a tiny baby in a church with beautiful stained glass windows, I see this picture of Jesus just as he was kneeling uh, on the garden. However, realistically, I know that having been born where he was, there's very little chance he was a little like like <laughs> you know. Right. So the face sometimes, for instance, when I say the word peace, and peace helps me to, to get into a, a proper frame of mind to receive whatever I can receive or say what I can say. I see that picture that I saw as a little child, and yet when I think of the Holy Family, I will say, Mary, I don't think of a blue-eyed blonde right. and so often see the pictures. I think more of the famous painting, but it actually, in my heart and soul and mind, 
I'm not leaving that space. Right. It, it's a, it's more as Barbara said, a feeling that's almost indescribable that floods you or makes you <laughs> mentally and physically aware of your absolute dependence on the strength, at least I'm probably the oldest person in this room, <laughs> and Maybe what true. you're, as you go through life and experience the ups and the downs, which everybody does, without that strength, I don't know how people exist. Mm. And I don't, I think if it helps people to find a face they should use it. If they don't need it, God still hears what you're saying. Ah, thank, thank you, you thank so you. much. Uh, Bill's been waiting, yes. Yeah, the giving a face, I find in the Jewish tradition, <clears throat> it's limiting. By giving it a face, God a face, it limits mm -hmm. who God is. Um, I agree with... Straight out of the Second Commandment, right. <laughs> That's right. That's the basic way I feel. Um, and I also respect those who do need a face for it. Well, and that's interesting. You respect those who do need, and need is even a word that has a, um, uh, a kind of a... Derogatory. Yeah. Well, right. condescension to it. Right. Right. And, that has been, and that has been the state of Jewish Christian uh, debates uh, for centuries and right. centuries. You know? right. Right. Well, okay. It's nice that you need that, yes, but exactly, I don't. Exactly, exactly. So, so it has that edge. But, but it didn't mean I know, I know you didn't mean it. I know you didn't mean it. I think, Yoke, if it's like... Hillary says, if I'm a moderate, I accept being a moderate. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, but the point is, in this class, we're finally looking at shared origins, different paths. Uh, and that's fascinating. Stu, and then I'll go back around this way. I, I just want to say that uh, I was a, a Jewish atheist. I got married to a left-wing Irish Irish woman. Former Irish Catholic. <laughs> and on, on Yom Kippur, we were often hiking in the mountains. And then I became also aware of Roman Vishniak. And Roman Vishniak, with his stuff of the Holocaust and the people who he He was a photographer. That face to me brought me back into Judaism. Mm. So you as a photographer, uh, Bob, should realize that we do it, and you know, we're talking Jewish, I'm Jewish. Mordecai Kaplan said, there are Jewish communists, there are Jewish atheists, somehow you're connected to this tribe in some kind of a way. So I'm going to, I'm expanding the concept of, of Judaism a face. in that sense. Uh -huh. Thank you. So the face of the little boy that <laughs> Rowan Vishniak took in Poland brought you back. Well, that goes back to what Jay was saying about how, how the faces were wired to respond uh, with, uh, to, to face. That's fascinating. Uh, so 
I'm aware of a couple of things. First of all, I don't know how we got kind of on this face thing. Is yeah. it because um, Jesus was also human, therefore he has a face? I, it's interesting. It wasn't where I thought we were going to go, but I, I, here no, we are. You never know. Because <laughs> I don't, that's kind of not one of the main yeah. problems for, you know, yeah. or, or ideas for me that I don't quite get. Well, well, let's steer, let's steer no, beyond the face. Don't, don't interrupt me. So what... Um, what I've been a part of, which is really interesting, I don't know if anybody here knows Matthew Fox. He's this really cool dude. And he did these costumes. Well, you have to say who he he's, is. He's an Episcopal priest. He was a Roman Catholic was, Dominican, yeah. and he was silenced by the Vatican and then welcomed the, into the Anglican communion and became by a... By old pope. Right, yeah. by Pope Benedict, right. So now, so he's, now he's an Episcopal priest, Episcopal and he priest. teaches a, a school of Christian thought that he calls creation spirituality, right. um, which is very much... What's that? Right, right. right. And deep ecumenism. Um, so anyway, so back to So he does over. these things, he used to anyway, called cosmic raves, <laughs> which was really this very ecstatic state of experiencing Christ energy, I guess, is what he called it. It had nothing to do really with the face. Right. It had to do right. with the energy <laughs> that I think I heard you talk right. about, now, particularly yeah. mm-hmm. what it looks like. Um, and I'm interested in Judaism. We have many names, different names for um, different qualities of God. Mm-hmm. Correct. What are they? What do those represent in terms of? It's not a face exactly, but it's a quality. The yes, Adonai attributes. And e- each of the names of God represents in Jewish spirituality a different attribute of divinity, which. Uh, um, uh, Similarly, like God the nurturer, God the lawgiver, God the sustainer, God the so yeah that they and all of those attributes. Is there one for God the sufferer? Um, that is a great question. Yeah, it's Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! I think. Well, that is such a great answer. Let's think about that for a second before we. I want to think about that's a big one. Let's think about that for a second. The one who shares our suffering. Um, the yeah. God the compassionate, God as it says, the one who, the healer of broken hearts, though from the Psalms, the one who bandages our wounds, there is, there is, um, uh, but and then there are the so now my I'm just thinking out loud, when the uh, Jews went into exile, um, the the one of the which main exile? huh exile? oh sorry sorry. <laughs> When the uh, after the Roman destruction in the first century, um, and uh, that exile, um, the uh, rabbi said that Mother Rachel is weeping for her children, and they identified the Shekhinah, which is the indwelling presence of God, which has very many feminine um, um, attributes. attributes, overtones to it as having gone into exile with her children and weeps with them over being exiled. So that is the suffering, the the God who suffers with us. It's the Shekhinah who comes with us into exile. Um, 
and that is a that 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 gets framed in after the destruction in the first second century. I'm so glad you brought that up. But that's different. Because that's someone who suffers for us, not I mean, for our suffering. Right. Not someone it's the mother weeping for her children for us by suffering with us right. as opposed to for us. That's different. That's different. Desiree, nice and loud, please. This also translates in Catholicism to Our Lady of Sorrow. Sure. And the Shekinah and the Blessed Mother in uh, many people's belief system are, are the one mother goddess, which also translates into what is the Holy Spirit. So if you're worshiping the Trinity um, and it's all one, and you're a Jew, and you're worshiping God the Father from the Trinity, it, it's still all the same. So as, as com, coming from the outside as a convert, this is something that my mother has um, tried to explain to my siblings who are like, oh my God, she's rejected Christ, she's a Jew, what's going to happen? That's where you grew up Catholic. I, I grew up Catholic, and that it's easy to find movements where, where the feminine divine um, manifests as Shekinah, as uh, Our Lady, Our Blessed Mother, and all these different things. So we're looking, we're all looking to the same source and giving it all different names. And, and in Christianity, very much the, the image of Sophia, of Chokmah, in the Hebrew scriptures, wisdom, carries over into the New Testament scriptures, and Jesus is sometimes seen as an embodiment of wisdom, who's always personified as a woman, you know, as the divine feminine. Um, and Jonathan and I have been talking, there's been so much interest around the divine feminine in both Jewish and Christian traditions that we want to do a whole separate series just looking at all those images. So we won't spend too much time there today, but we want to really come back to that in depth. And we want women to teach that with us. Yeah, yeah. Um, just to be clear. So I want to say, hold on okay. one more minute, because I really want to pursue what Susan said, because I'm confused about it. And it's, the, it's, it's one of the nubs of the issue. It's like, in Judaism, God doesn't suffer for us. It's a different story somehow. I'm just fishing around. You know, the Shekhinah suffers with us, weeping, as she watches her children leaving, uh, uh, the, leaving Jerusalem and travels with us. Mm -hmm. Even though the temple's been destroyed, God's exiled presence is still with us. And in mm -hmm. fact... Uh, that's, but it's different, as Carol was saying, than the, the God who suffered for our sins. Mm -hmm. uh, do you know what I'm saying? Right, but it's also suffered with and as us. You know, it's a different... So it's, it's a... It's not, it's, not, it's not the mother suffering for her children. There's still that sense of separation. I'm suffering because they're suffering. It's, oh. it's I am them and I'm suffering I as them. Suffering. Right, oh. I am. Right. Okay, so then it's not that different in that regard. It's... God coming into human form to suffer with us. As us. As us. As uh -huh. us. Um, in total, total identification. Right, total with. identification. Oh, wow. <clears throat> I want to pull back to something. Any more thoughts on this? Uh, Diane had something Gale. she wanted to say. Well, this, this is not about the suffering. This is about you need a face and I don't. No. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, when my daughter was maybe six years old, and in school, and she came home and she said, okay, I know this isn't true, Mom, but some people say that God is a man who lived a long, long time ago. 
How old? How old is she? She's six or seven. So, okay. So I launched into my experience of God, and she listened, and then she said, "Okay, I know it isn't true, but I'm going to believe that God is." I'm because the rest was just you know way too abstract. And um, so I think rather than saying you need it, I think it's like an entry point. I mean, mm, nobody, nicely put. Nobody rebels against their parents when they find out that Santa Claus is not real. You know. Sure they do. <laughs> you lied to me. I hate you. Really, kids? Oh, kids do that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Oh. Okay. Well, I don't know. Where's the Christian children? But I, to me, like, well, what's the profit in that? You know, to find out there's no Santa Claus. I mean, you believe in Santa Claus because it's good. Right. You know. And most people make, in my experience, make the adjustment to just they turn Santa Claus into the spirit of Christmas, the spirit of loving and sharing and giving, which is nice, also nice. And they don't I think people make that transition. But I think people uh, have a harder time making the transition uh, of, you know, God is not a guy in the sky on the throne. People, once they find out that God, you know, when children find out God is not a guy in the sky who will bring me a bicycle, um, then they say, oh, I don't believe in God. Right. And they don't make that transition into the spirit of it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, and I think perhaps people who look at Christians and say, oh, you need Jesus, but I don't, don't understand what people mean by, mean by that. You know, they, they don't understand that as you so eloquently explained, the transition to the spirit. Um, Gail had something, Barbara, you're responding Barbara, to Barbara, why don't you respond right? to that directly? It's like the presidential debates. Uh, because <laughs> no. perhaps even, even Christians might kind of see who is kind of more of a higher level of understanding of those who need Jesus as some kind of a subject to help. As a crutch. It's a crutch. And then there's, you know, there's many different layers of Christianity that would say, there's both the, um, what's the word, apophatic and the cataphatic, yeah. where you can include the many images of God, of nature, of people, of right. scripture, of so many faces. Which word is that? Apophatic? So the, this, the Christian tradition, historically, yeah. they're big Greek words, uh, distinguish between two classifications of prayer. Apophatic prayer, which is sort of unknowing prayer, stripping away images, feelings, objects, and then cataphatic prayer, which is prayer that uses images and concepts and feelings. And so sometimes it's also via negativa, the one that strips away, and via positiva, the one through the images. So, so those are the two is, ways oh, into prayer. So everything thank you. is included or nothing, is way beyond any definable, <laughs> and yet everything can also be a reflection. And so that is a way of understanding. It's not like you need a face when perhaps you understand God and Christ is so much more beyond right. an image of a word, even in scripture, or an image of a face, or an image of an icon, and yet it doesn't in- exclude. It's right. Everything is included here. Uh-huh. Yes, right. And those yeah. two prayer uh-huh. forms aren't traditionally ranked. It's not that the, yeah. the way of negation is higher than the way yeah, of affirmation, right. but that they're two mutually interacting ways into wow. mystery. Well, I think Gail's been. Gail's been, yeah. Okay, go ahead, Carol. Um, Hold on. Right. Just what I'm, I'm just getting here. Um, our God does suffer. Our God suffers in Torah all the time. That's true. And 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 uh, I so 
So being created in the image of God, this is just what you were saying, we get it all. We get every piece of it. I think, I think popularly people don't think of God as suffering. Mm-hmm. God in the Old Testament as suffering, but God suffers. And repents, and repents. for having Clearly made us repents. screw ups in the first place. Right? <laughs> Uh, what's the old saying that in the beginning God created us, uh, created us in God's image and we've been returning the favor ever since? <laughs> right, I like that. That was when the original sin came from God. In the beginning God created us in God's image and we've been returning the favor ever since. <laughs> Margo. Yeah, look at you a second. Oh, Gail, yeah, Gail, was, Gail and then Margo. You've, it's I'm been having, a I'm having too, too many thoughts, but, but I retain the experience having now listen to many Christians of any faith, that there is something different yeah. okay, in the relationship that's real. Yeah. And that at the deepest spiritual level, I think we're in the same place as, as everything. When you reach the deepest spiritual deepest level. Spiritual. But. Uh-huh. but... But I think it is much harder for Jews to feel the intimate presence both within and with us, but definitely, and although it's in it's in rabbinic teaching, it's not what we kind of do in our services all that, we just don't. It's not the main place we go. God speaks to us through Torah, we offer back all kinds of responses, but it's not an intimate relationship. And in addition, there's a very large thread, which is particularly I'm aware of in Leviticus, but it's throughout, of fear of God. Yes. It's not just love, God loves us, but we have reason to fear. And it's even in the very appreciation of the majesty and grandeur, there's, there's a fear connected with it. And we teach, I mean, it's in our liturgy, mm-hmm. it's in all of the... And I don't, I'm not talking about sin. I don't mean that. I mean, simply God's presence is so overwhelming mm-hmm. that there's a lot of preparation before he speaks at Sinai. I mean, there's a lot, you know, only don't come part way up the mountain. Right. Don't come the whole way. There's all the stories about, you know, the, the sages going into the garden and only one comes out sane. Right. Right. So, and that feels very different to me that somehow the mediation through Jesus goes only to the love and the compassion. Is that right? I, 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 w- I want to, after Margot talks, I want to back very up interesting. and, and talk you. about where you're going there. But um, the, the awe, the fear of God, certainly that language carries over into some of the New Testament and carries over from the Hebrew Scriptures into Christianity. But there are veins in the New Testament Scriptures where, in one of the letters to uh, uh, Peter, he says, perfect love casts out all fear. And there's a sense that, that fear... The fear of the Lord is perhaps the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the end of it, you know. And that as you move into deeper love, the the fear kind of goes away. Um, but I want to we'll back up and look at I want to look at sort of meta narrative stuff. Um, but Margo, and I, this is very simple, but I'm addressing your first question, and I think it was what is it that Christians? What are you? Like, you? What do I? Think? Yeah, we asked it as a personal question. A, a personal question about Jesus, and and this is a whole different level, but. I think of uh, Jesus, first of all, as being a true historical figure. 
and I know we have a lot of limitations of what we know about him, but we do know that he was a healer, a miracle worker, a wonderful teller of parables, that he came out of the Jewish tradition, but those are so essential to my Christian beliefs, the parables. He turned things upside down. He went up against the empire. He was a rebel. He loved women. He hung out with sinners. And he did suffer and die. He went up against the Roman Empire, and he was crucified as the Romans crucified the very, the very uh, lowest of the low. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all of those kind of things. It's just so simple. And um, you know, we have this other, and I'm not going to go into it, the incarnational aspects, but you know, is that is that a real part of your Christian well, life too? Yes, the fact is that there, there we had 2,000 years ago, somebody who walked the walk, talked the talk, showed the way, uh, took on a divinity in the sense of we all have that possibility and, to mm -hmm. do. And, uh, and then he died, and he wasn't forgotten, but that Christ-like stuff still goes on. So it's, um, it's not like just liking a Martin Luther King and admiring... There's something even more because even Martin Luther King was, I don't know, I could go on and go on, but it's, for me, it's just kind of like, uh, maybe it's not theological, it's just sort of simple and uh, like, how do, how do I really, how is the best way for me to live my creative human life? And I don't know of a better model. Well, and when Christian, and Jonathan wants to respond to that, when Christians, when you ask a Christian, what is God like? Typically, a Christian doesn't paint some abstract doctrine that can happen, but they point to Jesus and say, God's like that. What is God like? Like this person. Mm -hmm. Like the person you just described. Those mm -hmm. are the qualities of the divine. Mm -hmm. um, and so it does move out of just the creedal stuff. Great. But so, uh, over to you. Well, what I was going to say is, isn't this, hold on, hold on, hold on, just a second. We'll, we'll, we will. Just a second. I'm finding this so interesting. Uh, this is why I wanted to ask the question. Barbara described something uh, uh, when the question was asked, what's it, what's it mean for you to have a personal relationship with Jesus? She gave her answer. Mm -hmm. Margot gave her answer, and they're fascinatingly di different. 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 They're, they're not exclusive, clearly. Uh, in fact, I could imagine uh, those living together, you know, having... Right. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I, just, uh, I just wanted to point out how interesting that is, that that for some Christ, committed Christians, having a personal relationship with Jesus um, uh, is about identifying with this figure human history, this figure of history. Right. And for others, it's about an ongoing and evolving relationship with spirit uh, through the, um, through the um, images and metaphors of, Christian, of Christianity. Uh, that's, that's very interesting to me, mm -hmm. because if we talk to Jews, um, and you ask what connects you to Judaism, that's always the best way to say it because faith has gotten sort of squeezed out of a lot of Jewish lives, uh, the language of faith. For some, it's a connection to Jewish history. For others, it's a connection and a deep felt connection to God. For others, it's, you know, there are so many <coughs> points of entry uh, and that's what I, I was reflecting on. So now some more people had comments, they were pretty uh, it, yeah. 
Me, well, you want to say something? I, I, what I wanted You're the about, teacher. You get to talk. I mean, talk. we can go on and on with this, and I want to keep hearing from everyone. When I, um, Diane just asked, could we talk about the difference between Jesus and Christ? Is that what you said, Diane? You had told us you would tell us. Yeah, well. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> okay, so we're going to have to hold off. Well, okay, let's hear so, about this. So let's, I'll, do, Sorry, I'll, I'll try to reflect on this a little bit, but one of the things I thought in order to talk about what Jesus means within a Christian context or framework, we have to sort of step back and talk about um, our meta-narratives. And Jonathan and I got into this in personal dialogue the other day, mm. but to talk about uh, our mythos, the Christian mythos, the Jewish mythos. And, um, and I want to use the word myth here, uh, not in, in the pejorative sense of something that's not true, but that myth, um, it's the, the stories and the images that are containers and conveyors of our deepest truths. And it's how we sort of frame and orient our spiritual lives, our spiritual reality. And the Jewish mythos and the Christian mythos are different. And sometimes we use uh, the same terms in different ways within our two uh, frameworks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the word Christ, what it has come to mean in Christianity, is in many ways very different from what it means in Judaism. And we ran into this um, before in the last series a little bit, but I thought one place to start with, um, what does Jesus mean, is to start with this word Christ and the way it evolves within the Christian framework. And, and what St. Paul does with this word, so the word Christ, we talked about this before, it just means an anointed one in Hebrew. It's not you. We have the same ringtone. It's not you. Oh, it isn't. No. <laughs> tricked, uh, tricked you. Tricked you, Bob. He was looking for an excuse to get up. That's so, yeah, you jumped up off a quick there. Uh, um, so, Christ means anointed one. Uh, but in the Christian scriptures, it gets expanded to mean this very sort of cosmic universal reality. Talks it, Paul talks about Christ as the one in whom and through whom all things have come into being, and the one in whom all things hold together. So Christ becomes this, um, almost this net, this web, this, this sort of cosmic uh, field, relational field of intimacy that all things hold together in. Christ in this very large sense. And Paul says that Christ is the mystery that has been present from the beginning, um, and that has been disclosed at last in Jesus. And he takes traditional Jewish images and he says, Christ was with us in the, in the pillar of smoke and the, the column of fire in, in the wilderness. You know, that this, um, this universal Christ has been present, guiding God's people, and then it's sort of disclosed in the life of Jesus. So that's a very different concept from just an anointed one. You know, this big kind of thing. Um, so, so that's how sort of Christ plays out. And then, so set that over on the side. And then the other thing that Christianity does, it sees throughout the course of the narrative of the, of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures a deepening disclosure of the heart and will of God that's happening. Um, and, and this comes back to our, our theology of covenant, our, our uh, mythology of covenant, we could say, that God made a covenant with Adam and Eve, our first parents, then renewed, deepened, made a new covenant with Noah, then made a new covenant with Abraham, called a people into being, then at Sinai, 
calls a new covenant into being with the people. And so Christianity sees that story continuing, but it sees it as progressive. It's the, the revelation of the heart and will of God deepens with each covenantal disclosure. And what Paul would see happening is this mystery of Christ that's been hidden throughout the ages is coming um, into fuller and fuller manifestation. And so Christianity takes that mythos of, of the covenanting God and sees a new covenant initiated in Jesus. Um, and you'll often hear Christians say Jesus is God, um, which is actually not entirely accurate Christian theology to solely say Jesus is God, um, because that's if you stop there, it's a heresy in the church called docetism, which only affirms the divinity of Jesus, that he was fully God and it denies the humanity. What Orthodox Christian theology has taught, not simply Jesus is God, but Jesus is the full and perfect union of the human and the divine, um, which is, has a little different edge to it than just saying he's God. He's the full and perfect union of the human and divine. And that um, in this sort of progressive disclosure, that's what history has been moving towards from the very beginning. Uh -huh. God has been moving into deeper and deeper union uh, with creation through humanity in each of these deepening covenantal relationships. And then in Jesus, you see the full and perfect union of the human and divine achieved. And then the idea is that Jesus initiates a mystical body of Christ that then continues unfolding. Um, and so there's a new covenant that initiates a new people, a new mm -hmm. body, that is the body of this, you know... That anyone can join. Uh, yes, that anyone can join. And it, it plays on the earlier scriptures that say that the light that God has been cultivating in Israel is ultimately for all people. And all nations will stream to God's holy mountain and, you know... What does Isaiah say? You shall be a light unto the nations mm -hmm. and release the captive from, from the dungeon and the, uh, give, open the eyes of the blind. And so I'm telling you this to say this is a Christian mythos. This is the story, the framework. I'm not saying this is literal truth or absolute truth. We all have our different mythos, mythology. But... To see Jesus as that union, he becomes, he takes on a special quality for Christians, and uh, <coughs> he, let me see how to say this, there's almost a sense in the New Testament scriptures that the essence of his personhood, that he has brought something new into manifestation and creation in his personhood, um, and let me think how to do this with, within our actual experience. So, if you think of the qualities of someone you love who is now deceased, if you call to mind the qualities of a beloved one, not memories of them, uh, not thoughts about them, but the actual qualities, and try doing this. If their, you're, their presence. Their pre that's it, right. Just close your eyes for a second and see if you can call into your awareness the presence, the essence, the qualities of a beloved one. Do you get a little sense of that, some of you? Um, I was thinking of my dad, the qualities of his essence, um, who's no longer here with me. So there's a sense in the Christian story in which 
the personhood, the tincture, the essence of who Jesus was um, is still available, and that the qualities he embodied, um, St. Paul lists these as the fruits of the Spirit, um, gentleness and uh, patience, compassion, love, that these qualities that were manifested in the heart of Christ that are the essence of his personhood, it's still accessible. You can still access it. Um, and... Hmm. Well, that's, that's sort of it, I guess. That those qualities that you can uh, still relate, that Jesus is the face of this relational field of intimacy that's universal and cosmic, um, that Jesus becomes a human face of that, that the qualities he brings in in his personhood continue to sort of reverberate through the cosmos. St. Paul says um, that Jesus, after he's crucified, he says, God raised him far above all things that he might fill all things. So there's a sense that um, the personhood, the qualities of Jesus, now fill, fill the whole universe. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful sort of image. Um, so, so I wanted to throw that out as sort of Great. part of the... Yeah, yeah, Great. yeah, yeah, and just jump in. What's the job of God then if Jesus is doing all that? Right. Well, well if the idea, if God, if God is disclosing God's heart through the unfolding of creation... Um, you know, we're here manifesting the heart and qualities of God in time and space. We're the disclosure of the heart of God. I'm going to take a run at that, but go ahead. Couldn't you, if you could just say what you said about Jesus, about God, I'm not understanding where there's a difference. I'm not understanding what the separation is. What what separation? Distinction, is that the word? Distinction. Thank you. Between God and Jesus. Between God and Jesus. Because everything you've just said, I can say about God. Well, sure. I mean, that's what Christians do. They, they assign the divine qualities to Jesus. Jesus becomes their disclosure in a human life. Then why is there God and Jesus is what I There's not in Christianity. There isn't God and Jesus. Jesus is God incarnate in the Jesus Christian tradition. Jesus is a manifestation. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't, we don't tend to talk about Jesus and God. We talk about the God, the Holy Trinity. Right, the whole thing is God, the Holy Trinity. It's not that one piece of it is God and the other two pieces aren't. The okay. whole thing is God. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> There's also a sense in Christianity of an evolutionary sense where we are all, even evolution itself, the creation is groaning. It's all opening up to greater and greater love. And that Jesus even said that and greater things will be happening, that we ourselves are to continue. Mm-hmm. We are given the torch. Right, he says, greater things than I have done, than, than right, than these do. you will do. And he also talks like the Eastern Orthodox talk a lot about divinization, where we ourselves, it's not just Jesus as a separate thing. There's a continuation, this wave that's, that each individual has an opportunity to be part of this whole dance. Right. So let me talk about, thank you. So let me talk about, oh, Susan, please. Um, on this, taking a different approach to this question of intimacy, when I came in and read the things from last week, I wanted to mention that on the Christian side, something that's exciting me a lot these days is that we're shifting from uh, salvation being a question of what of believing the right things, mm-hmm. of someone having died for us, of um, 
you know, just externals. Right. And so we have a very, we have had a very passive stance as Christians. You know, oh, it's all done for us. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And what I loved about Judaism is that it's just the opposite. You know, we are now, it's our job to live out towards right. um, realizing the vision. Right. And so now, um, that to me feels very intimate. You know, it's, you know, I, I am part of the mission that was given to the, to the people of Israel and I don't know how, how much beyond. So that to me feels wonderfully intimate, that I'm cooperating. Yes. My hands are doing your work and yes. that sort of thing. Yeah. Whereas Christianity, you know, right. um, so not involved. We talked about this a bit last week and that th this, um, split happened within Christianity at the Protestant Reformation that up until that point there hadn't been an understanding that there was a radical divide between nature and supernature between God and the world the idea was that with with the fall uh, the image of God had been marred in humanity but not erased in humanity um, and with sort of radical Protestant theology there was this there came in this doctrine of utter depravity that with, that with the fall the image of God had been wiped out of the species um, and it was all just a salvage operation. And Jesus came, did the work of salvation, and now we've just got to, you know, jump onto that boat. And um, more a train of coming, right? But but more traditional historical Christian theology wasn't so sort of despairing. And when you read the New Testament epistles, it's very clear. Saint Paul talks says God was in Christ reconciling the world to God's self, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And there's this sense that we are to be a reconciling force in the world, reconciling the human family. Uh, and it is a sense of an ongoing mission, that we're the ongoing, unfolding body of Christ. Uh, and uh, it's like St. Teresa of Avila's poem, you have no hands in the world now but not mine, no feet but mine. Uh, mine are the eyes through which Christ looks compassion on the world. But I think for a long time, Christianity did fall into this very sort of... Passive, um, Jesus died for our sins. We accept that He did the work for us, and then we wait to die and go to heaven. Huh. Right. Yeah. Well, let me speak for a little and while, okay? Time we make money and, right. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. There are there are countless countless permutations where the human desire for self uh, advancement uh, can insert itself can insert itself into any <laughs> spiritual narrative. Right. There's no question about it. What I want to speak about, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take, uh, take my prerogative. So we were talking about this meta narrative, this mythos. Judaism and Christianity share that mythos up to a point, and this is where the religions diverge, right? So the Jewish tradition understanding, and we, a lot of us won't be familiar with this, is that the arc of history, the, 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 not the arc, it's not an arc, it's the, the rhythm of history uh, is that, our, which is told again in mythic terms about the Jewish people, right? Because the focus of the Bible is on the Jewish people, right? It's our story. Is that it's a series of coming together in moments of we finally got it together with God and then losing it and then coming together again. And that rhythm is the traditional Jewish understanding of the Bible, which is not a um, superficial reading. Why? Because if you, 
in everything in the Torah is the numbers of everything are important. So there are 10 generations between Adam and Noah. And there are 10 generations between Noah and Abraham. And so on. Abraham and Moses. Abraham and Moses, right? Because you know 10 is a big number in the Bible, whether it's the 10 plagues or the 10 commandments. So you look for 10s. They're going to tell you something. And 7s and 40s. 7s, 43s. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, so Adam and Eve in the garden are in a state of union with the divine. They eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and that, 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 that divine union is shattered, right? And they have to leave the garden. Oh, you think. I think. <laughs> ten generations, when you count, ten generations later, human beings have become so disconnected and so depraved that God says, I've got to start over. Find Noah. And uh, after the flood, when they come out from the ark and a new covenant is formed, the covenant of the rainbow with Noah, it's an, in the rabbinic mind, that is the moment when things have come together again. And then it starts to deteriorate again. Until God says, I've got to disclose myself, and this is so important, I have to disclose more of my intentions for the world to some human being, Abraham, my friend. He's called Abraham, my beloved, my lover. And with the covenant with Abraham and the intimacy that Abraham shares with God, Right? God says, I'm, I've got to talk to my friend Abraham about the, the depravity down at Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham says to God, will not the judge of all the world deal justly? Uh, what if there are righteous people down there and you're killing them? In other words, in this meta-narrative, in this mythic narrative, God is looking for company. Mm-hmm. Right? God is looking for human company. God created us in God's image so that we might meet God and disclose, I want to use that word, disclose God's presence to the, to the world that's been created. And so with Abraham, there is a moment of, once again, intimacy. full union and intimacy. The descendants of Abraham go down to Egypt. They, Pharaoh doesn't know God. They don't remember. And the story of the Exodus is the next level of disclosure of God into the world. God discloses God's self to the entire people and covenants with them. And the understanding of the Jewish tradition is that the moment at Mount Sinai is the next moment of this full revelation where Moses comes down, remember, and, Moses, and then it, uh, and the, it says, all the people heard God's voice and said, we will listen and we will do, we will do and we will listen, and receives the Torah which in the Jewish terms, again, is the template for how to manifest God's will in the world. And then the golden calf happens almost immediately afterwards. You can see the rhythm of this, right? But I'm not, this isn't my story. This is rabbinic Judaism reading the Torah. This is how we've read the Torah for 2,000 years. And it's shattered. And once again, Moses has to go up on the mountain to um, uh, get God's forgiveness and get God to reveal God's energy, Adonai, Adonai, El-Rachum, Bachanun, compassionate and, lo- and long-suffering and, 
And Moses comes down with the second set of tablets, and his face is radiant, right? So once again, unions, but then 40 years of wandering. The next time in the rabbinic mythos that it finally all comes together is when the temple is built in Jerusalem. And if you read that Solomon dedicates the temple and the divine presence finally is resting again with the people in Jerusalem, another moment, and then what happens? The temple's destroyed. This is the first exile, right? It's not really the first exile because in the rabbinic mythic telling, we are in a constant cycle of exile and reunion with divine consciousness. Right? That's, that's Jewish history. Not Jewish history. That's Jewish mythic history. Is the constant cycle, Jonathan, just up, down, up, down, or is it deepening in disclosure? Is it spiraling? This is what we're talking about. This, this, it's spiraling. So this is where we were having this, like, oh, I never understood this before conversation, which is that uh, when the second temple is built, once again in the Jewish mythos, it's restored, the union, and all is well. But then the destruction happens. And there are two responses. First of all, you should know that because of Isaiah and other sources like that, where it says, you shall be a light unto the nations, and all the people shall grab onto your cloak and say, let us all go up to the mountain of God, and the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. This is all in the book of Isaiah, right? So the Jews have a mission. The Jews of antiquity have a mission. They are actively proselytizing throughout the Roman Empire. They are not just a bunch of people in Jerusalem giving Rome a hard time. There are Jewish communities all over the Roman Empire who are actively proselytizing because it says we're supposed to. So in that context, think of Jesus and his followers as Jews. Right? We've talked about this over and over again. Jews of the first century who say, we've reached the next moment of union where we are truly going to be a light to all the nations. We're changing the rules. This is a new covenant. We're not changing the rules, per se. We're changing the terms. Because mm -hmm. uh, this is a new covenant that now finally fulfills the divine intention that, the, that, that through the Jewish people, the light will be disclosed to all the nations. Right? And when he said this to me, I went, oh, now I understand what Christians mean by that. They see this progression uh, as, as an evolution of greater and greater divine disclosure that culminates in, um, in uh, the new covenant through Jesus. How Which isn't the first new covenant. There's been a new covenant here and a new right. covenant here and a the new covenant newest here. covenant. And then, and then our beloved Muslim brothers and sisters, they get that's the right. next chapter of the disclosure. They have another, that's right. They say it's the end. There's no more. They say there's no more. Right. But they were smart enough to say, and that's it. <laughs> we, left the, we left the story open-ended. Well, oh, oh, so, so first of all, having this conversation, I... Uh, the, the Jews never extended, the Jews who remain Jews never extended that story to some newer covenant that, that is the covenant of Christianity. Um, and yet we shared that the, those first Jews, Christians, were Jews. And they were speaking to the world as Jews, as Jews understanding 
mythic history as Jews. Um, I, I, does that make sense, everybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, this was a new insight of mine that I'm sure many people have, other people have had before, but now I have it. So talking to Matthew, just one second, Jay, and then I'll recognize you. So then the, our conversation went to was, in a way, so the Jews continued to proselytize along with the early Christians. They were competitors at mm -hmm. that point because the Jews hadn't abandoned this idea that it's our job to be a light to the nations. That idea was abandoned historically once Christians became the rulers of the Holy Roman Empire and actively suppressed Jews who were trying to proselytize. At that point, most of us grew up with the axiom that Jews don't seek converts. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, in fact, if you're taught this stuff, if, uh, if traditionally someone would have to come and inqu inquire to study Judaism three times and be turned away. You were supposed to turn this person away three times. And if they came back a fourth time, you could teach them. This probably emerged as a result of Jews fearing for their lives because there were plenty of undercover agents. Um, so if they found out you were willing to convert someone, then you, you know. Right. So then historically, once the Christianity gained the reins of power, uh, Judaism, we essentially had to close ranks. Right. And I was thinking, when I was talking to Matthew, and I want to think out loud with you, that in that sense, we Jews um, limited ourselves because as we need to survive, right, against imperial power. Um, and we probably lost something in the process. On the other hand, we gained something as well, because not having the um, levers of power, uh, we, under we came to cultivate understanding, an understanding of um, powerlessness, as it were, an outsider's ironic understanding, what it takes to maintain ourselves and survive, a humility in a certain sense uh, that Christians might have trouble maintaining. Um, they certainly had it in the beginning when they were being persecuted and suppressed, exactly, but exactly. then they got the power. But I was thinking that, my goodness, um, never have I understood before what a Christian means when they say, it's, we're just the next step, right? This is a look at, the, look at the narrative of the Torah. And then when you actually read the rabbinic interpretation of the, this progression of exile and reunion, then you I understood it, I think, for the first time. Um, they're mythologizing as Jews. They're mythologizing as Jews. And they are taking the Jewish teachings to their ultimate, to their denouement, which is it's for all the world. That's what it says. Okay, Jay. Getting back to the butt. Um, huh. I think I said, Getting back to what? The butt. Oh, the butt. Oh, okay. I think, uh, this, I'll repeat what he says. I think this power change happened in the third century when Constantine made it. Made this change it. probably happened when Constantine yeah. uh, yeah. shifted. Yeah, fourth, fourth century. Right. Persecutions right. ran through the third century. Exactly. And, 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 and the, the thing I just want to understand, uh, I understand this cycle, and you did it beautifully, but this last cycle, I think it could be argued that the rules have changed drastically. As of when? As of, with the, with as the Christian as of, story. As, as when the Christians came in power. 
Uh, but that's not consi- that's not part of the um, mythic cycle. Yeah, that but it's part of the Christian cycle. Isn't part of the Christ- no. part of Christian history. Now the coming into power and merging with Roman Empire. That's like a you know fluke of history. It's not part of the mythology. Well, in a way, you could say it becomes part of the mythology. Um, because you know, it becomes a mechanism right. to spread the good news to the entire world. But uh, it, but that's simply the fulfillment of the new covenant that Jesus brings to the world. So maybe I'm missing something then, because when you said the rules have changed, I'm looking at well now the Sabbath is a Sunday, not a Saturday. Right, right, right. Now, now you 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 don't have to eat kosher food, you could eat kosher food. Now the covenant with Abraham with the circumcision, you have to be circumcised. Right. But those are rules that that right. are no longer exist. So the rules. Those rules yeah. became superseded. The idea was new covenant, new rules. You know, um, and that, that's the, there's there are stories in the New Testament um, narrative. Uh, one is Saint Peter, who's keeping kosher as a good Jew, and he won't eat with outsiders. And he has this encounter in which he encounters the Spirit of God in these Gentiles, and doesn't know what to make of it. And then he's given a vision, a dream, in which he sees a sheet. He says it was as if a sheet were dropping down from heaven, and it's covered with food considered unclean. And a voice says, kill and eat. And he goes, no, Lord, you know, God forbid it. I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. And then the voice says, what God has made uh, clean, do not call unclean. And so he ends up then dining with Gentiles and, and breaking the rules. And so there's a sense in which, in the Christian story, that, that with the new covenant, Yes, the rules are changing. The outer form is being dissolved so that it can open up to the, the Gentiles. That's the way the story right. goes. So with your indulgence, there's now one more step, which is that the world is not fully redeemed yet, right? right. <laughs> so in both the classic Jewish, the traditional Jewish understanding, what are we waiting for? The next moment of divine and human reunion. We're waiting for it. That's called waiting for the Messiah. Right. And Christianity right? is waiting Christianity in the same way. Christianity is waiting in the same way for what it came to know as... The parousia, the second coming. The right, second right. coming. Uh, Ironic, isn't it? It yeah. might put us in a... So, I have two things to say about that. One is it's very, in my opinion, dangerous. I'll just use that. I, very dangerous to live human... to address human history as some kind of mythic journey. Because then you have to fit the whole, the whole shebang into your story. So or you have to tell a new story that is big enough to include the whole shebang. Well, yeah, but, but uh, if you know what I mean, once you are telling history through your specific mythicized lens, then the parts that don't fit in or that two billion other people over there, or the, you know, who aren't telling your story, it's like, it's big, big trouble in a global era. So one of our tasks is to understand our mythic story and the thrust of it. Mm-hmm. The thrust of it in Judaism and the thrust of it in Christianity is clear, that we humans are on a trajectory towards divine unity, right? But not live it as history, not as a real story, but use it as inspiration. This is crucial. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of sophistication to, to say, oh, mythic history is about, you had a great definition, it's about our inner, right. um, it, it's like, it's a description of our inner truths. Right, 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 right. You know, so, and stories, the, images that contain, that can express truths, not, express not stories that are truth. not true. Um, 
And so uh, in that case, we don't necessarily have to abandon our, sto- our mythic story if we can reframe it as being our story of how God wants humanity to one day all be one. Do you know what I'm saying? The mythos, mythos, mythi, mythoses, the mythos (laughs) no longer need to be in competition with each other. They're different mythic-orienting narratives for different traditions. And rather than having them go like this, Mm -hmm. you know, we Mm -hmm. can cut that out. Yes, Gail and then Bob. Cut that out. I was looking for the quotation in our prayer book that we begin the Shabbat Saturday morning service with. I wanted to double-check it. And it's, um, it's where, we were t- where we were going, the union of the divine with the human. So the phrase is, for the sake of the union of the blessed Holy One with the Shekinah, mm-hmm. the inward dwelling presence of God, I stand here ready in body and mind to take upon myself the commandment, the mitzvah, you shall love your fellow human being as yourself. Yeah. And by this merit may I open my mouth. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. You know, the the language that, I'm trying to think of verses that express that mythic, um, it's what in Christian theology is called teleology. Um, Yeah, I never know what that means. Yeah, the the Greek word is telos, which means endpoint or goal. And so if you have a, a, a mythic understanding of history that has a telos, it means history has a trajectory. History is heading somewhere. And um, the lines that St. Paul uses, there's one where he says, God has made known to us the mystery of God's will, a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Um, And again, remember, he uses Christ in that big sense. Christ disclosed in Jesus, but Christ also cosmic. So in the fullness of time, all things in heaven and earth gathered up into union um, with God. Another line it says, um, and all things will be put under subjection to Christ so that God may become all in all. So the goal is for God to fill all things, for God to become the all in all. The, the, I'll call on you a second, Bob. The analogy to that in the Jewish prayers is that we always end each service with the prayer called, next to the end, called Aleinu, which says uh, it's up to us to sanctify the creator here on earth and, to, uh, and that one day the, the earth will be perfected in the um, uh, kingdom of God, and on that day, God will be one, and God's name will be one. So there's that end-time vision, right, of where we're headed. But I think as moderns, if I'm going to, and I pray these words, I pray them in the spirit of Martin Luther King saying, I have a dream that one day, black children and white, you know, it's like, not as... It's the beloved community. Not as, if you're not on my boat, (laughs) then... You, you're in deep trouble, you know, and it's not in the terms of um, this is my, that I think, I do not think there's going to be an end to history, right? I think that's absurd. I think Come that's on, a, you don't think the sun's going to burn out? I, uh, this sun will burn out. This sun will burn out, but there'll be plenty of other suns, you know, and when this universe fizzles out, there'll be another one born. It's like, I do not, I don't go that direction. It's like, I'm not humans anymore. Perhaps, probably. Well, we're not going to be here forever. Right. The divine um, but will something keep else. disclosing itself through other worlds through and other, other universes. Right. Other, the, that, that's right. So, so, so I think the confusion of our inner spiritual journey narrative, which I've described to you. Which we of, then transpose outward onto history. Outward onto history 
is one of, is one of the reasons why it gives religion a bad name, right? Because of that confusion. Because then we're imposing our story onto everyone else and onto a creation that's completely unruly, right? Our little story isn't going to, isn't going to match up with the actual nature of the universe. Um, so we, but, but our story is our, our story can inspire us mm-hmm. to imagine a perfected world and to work towards it. And if we can just keep these distinctions a little clearer, then, then we understand what our sacred stories are for. Uh, that's what I wanted to share with that, Bob. Well, it's beautiful and inspirational. Beautiful. But, but <laughs> I'm waiting, is there a schedule? You talked about the 10 generations. Uh, is there a story. schedule? Yeah. Yes, I love the generation. Well, both Jews and Christians historically numbers. have loved making schemes about how things are going to unfold and right. happen. We'd and have to write, always inevitably wrong. We'd have to write a new Bible that, oh, see, because the Bible already mythicizes history. Right? The Bible is a mythic history. So we would have to write our own. And where people are doing it all the time, this is the age of Aquarius. This is the, this. This is the new age is happening now. Well, people are doing that all the time. But, but no, we have the artifact of the Bible, but we don't, but we don't have um, a continuing narrative since it's... Since but we do have it. We do have our, our contemporary mythic narrative. We do have our prophets. We have Martin Luther King Jr. We have Gandhi. We have these people. We've made prophetic figures in history who, you know, fulfill... Um, who bring it together. Who, who bring it together, yeah. who show us the trajectory of human history towards justice. But this is the, has the clock changed? I was so fascinated with the bibl- biblical story of the generation. That it's measured. Yes. Right, right. The that Bible is written that way. Right. It's, intentionally, okay. it's intentionally mythicizing history. It's intentionally finding intervals right. to map onto things rather beautiful. than the intervals. Right. The yeah. intervals are there embedded in the way the Bible was, was uh, created. Yeah. Now, I want to make one more comment about the downside of uh, the idea of the progression. Yes. Yes, because it's very uh, important to have the inspiration and very important to have a sense of movement and direction and progress. But on the other side, it splits us. I went, right. as I've said before here, I went to a college upstate where I was required to go to services every Sunday night. Or In Sunday, chapel, yeah. I don't remember now, but anyway. Uh, and the sense of the Jews were old-fashioned and Judaism was too bad, but it was not the new thing. And so Christianity was the new progress. And to deal with that as a Jew was uh, quite a story, mm-hmm. quite a, you know, a I, struggle. And that's the question we can't ignore about... Who's about, better? Who, about both who's better and yeah. about claims to uh, knowing the universal plan. You know, it's almost, I think, a sickness in the Abrahamic cultural matrix that we've all inherited uh, that loves to play a game of religious one-upmanship, yeah, whether yeah, it's yeah. the Jews are the chosen people, or salvation's only through Jesus, or yeah. Muhammad is the seal of prophecy. We're all trying to one-up each other. Yeah. And it's just like 
that's got to go, <laughs> you know. Right. That's in a global. That's got to go. In a global. Yeah. That's got to go. In a global. We're working on it. We're working on it. Yeah. But in a global world, you know, where uh, any sense of theological or religious superiority um, or exclusionary theological principles. It just divides and fragments us. And if we're trying to become a global human family, we've got to shuck that stuff off. Um, it doesn't serve. But can we take the mythos inherent in that, like Jonathan is saying, internalize use it. it to internalize it, use it to orient our individual religious narratives and worldviews, um, but not in the old fragmenting way that we've been doing it. Yeah, Abraham very, Joshua Heschel. It's difficult to have yeah. a mission and not have, very difficult to have a mission to be a light unto nations or to bring the good news or whatever the story is and not get into some kind of uh, one-upsmanship. Right. Self-aggrandizement. Right. Self-aggrandizement. Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. that's, yes. Why, that's why there needs to be three of you up there. We need a mind. <laughs> well, I've been saying it contact with, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We have some leads. We do. Yeah. We have some leads. Stu? And, and that's where perennial wisdom really was formulated. That if you think of each religion with its myths as an island, and here's the myth of Jesus, mm -hmm. here's the myth of Moses, here's the myth of the Hindu thing. Down below there's a commonality. Mm -hmm. And that commonality is be good to the, to the poor, help people, the love of things. The myths have all sorts of things. The other thing I wanted to say is in Judaism, the, the Kabbalists and the Zohar people, they were not happy with the story of the Bible. Like it says, the 13 attributes of God are all wonderful things. They then took the, through the altar, the Chabad people, and there's a wonderful English translation with its own view by Rami Shapiro on the Tanya. Mm -hmm. And they looked at it as five worlds. The first one is physical, the next one is heart, baby crying, etc. Third one is mental where our mental thing could go in one direction or the other. And then we have that little image a little bit over where you can start to see that we're all one. Mm -hmm. And then the fifth one is God, no words, right. only now. And then he, he, does, he does wonderful things. He says, I it, I thou. Mm -hmm. And that's where our mental thing goes. And then I is everything together. That's the I, one I. you can just see in. And when God, there's no I or thou, there's only now. There's no past or present. No I or thou, only now. And only, only there's now. And only we have no connection us. to that. And that's, that's the Kabbalist way of looking at it. And right. Judaism and all the religions oh, yeah. are always yeah, yeah, looking absolutely. for ways to interpret what's there. And I'm reading your, your teacher, Art Green, who says, I had this book of the Bible, and it was all lies, God's attributes. <laughs> he then goes ahead and goes deeper and deeper. And I'm not sure where he ends up. But, <laughs> He's not either. <laughs> but, but it is an interesting history. Thank you. Thank you, Stu. Susan? I kind of forgot what I was going to say. Oh, do you want to wait? No, no, no. There's another thing I wanted to say. And all the things that you guys are saying feel to me like if I don't live this, if I just keep it up here, as a kind of a conceptual thing, and the world is like this, and mm -hmm, kind of projected mm -hmm. out onto the world the way it is, projected out onto history the way it is, then I lose um, my opportunity to having lived in this world mm -hmm. and contributed. And so I know there's all kinds of stuff out there that's really difficult, but it's still incumbent on me 
to step in and live my life and hear this stuff and then put it through this Cuisinart of a body and, and have it come out in a way that is serving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, it just for me, it becomes so conceptual. Yeah. So then let's, okay, so now let's, let's imagine that this, oh, uh, and I'll recognize you in a second. Let's imagine that this mythic history has nothing to do with history, okay? But has everything to do with us. Because that's what myths are. Right? Myths yeah. are about us. In this mythic history, we are in a constant, um, um, uh, in Judaism we say uh, um, uh, uh, rhythm or, or, or prog progression of exile and return. Um, exiled from the consciousness we want to occupy, finding ourselves feeling cut off, disconnected, despairing, and then finding our way back to God consciousness, as we would say in religious terms. And so um, that is what the mythic history is trying to teach us. What do we need to do to get back to the garden? Right? Um, that's, uh, and these mythic understandings will reassert themselves <laughs> At Woodstock, right? They'll they we're wired to tell to have to 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 be in this to be in our story that we tell about ourselves of our journey from disconnection towards unity, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a beautiful thing, yeah. and that's what religious narratives are for. Uh, the problem is that it's dangerous zone because it's our tendency to try to equate our inner experience with outer reality and not to understand that they're sort of they're moving with each other, but they're not the same. It's also mistaken literalism. Sometimes we take mistaken literalism. Very mm -hmm. literal, and in dream work, we call that mistake. Right, right, right. You just very take nice. Dream for what it gives you. It's mistaken. Mistaken literalism. literalism. The thing I wanted to say oh, yes. that I remembered was when you're talking about the ten generations. As mm -hmm. that, that to me seems like a macro version of a of a of a micro version in every moment of time. Yeah. When we're going through that. Right, well, exactly. And, and this is perfect setup for us next week to talk about our liturgical cycles, which are the way we interiorize and live our mythic right. narratives we're going to talk about throughout that the course time. of the year. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that popped in my head, an yes. image, um, and I'm just, it doesn't really connect totally well, but it popped in my head and it's a fun <laughs> image. Um, you talked about that in the beginning, they were in, Adam and Eve were in perfect union with God in the garden, and then they ate from the tree and they fell, and it initiates this history of up and down. Right. What Christianity does um, with the image of the cross, Jesus is pictured as he becomes the fruit on the tree of life. And, oh. and one old legend is even that the cross was actually the very place where the tree had grown in the garden. Gotcha. And so it's sort of, you know, the restoration. But it's, again, playing with those mythic images. That's right. Um, was, the, was the tree and the cross the same wood? No. <laughs> probably not. But, you but, know, the, the but, fun thing but is... But wouldn't that be a good story to tell about the story? Right. You if know you, where they got the wood for the... <laughs> right, it was from... It's, <laughs> but the, the thing that happens there in the Eden myth, uh, God says... So they've eaten from the tree of knowledge and then says, quick, we got to kick them out before they eat from the from tree, the tree of, life. of life and live forever. And then the cross becomes the tree of life and you live forever. Gives you, they give you, know, you eternal life. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, oh. it's fun the way the traditions play with the images and create meaning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then Helen. I was taught that the phrase, the Jews are the chosen people, uh, oh, yeah, I wanted to speak mean, about this. 
that the Jews are the chosen people does not mean does not mean that they are the people who were favored by God um, because uh, just let me uh, par- um, Let's, very angry and very jealous. Let's, and what it does mean, in fact, is that the Jews were chosen to let the rest of the world know, to let everyone know that there is one God. Right. A light to enlighten the nations. Yeah. Right. Now, I want to talk more about chosen people uh, next time, because we're not going to have time today. And that it's very important to understand how chosen people was turned into an epithet against the Jews. When in fact, every pre-modern people identified themselves as God's special people, and everybody else as like wow. them. Wow. So we're going to talk about that next time. I wrote it down. Thank modern you, too. Helen. What did you say, Sue? I said modern too. The oh, Americans, modern too. Right. Uh, it's still sure right. The right. America. Oh well, manifest destiny yeah. comes right out of that. That's that's a whole interesting thing. Yes. You mean you mean p- movements that are more tribally oriented? Are they responses? Are, I mean, well, uh, you, we talked about how the Jews did not proselytize, but definitely the Hasidic movement is proselytized. No, they're not. No, no, no they proselytized to Jews, Helen. Only right, to right. Jews. Well, oh, no, no, no. Okay. Only to Jews. Right, that's true. They are completely for for and the only they in their sake in their narrative that everyone else are bit players. What their job is, is to reach out to yeah. Jews who have fallen away. It's those crazy Jews for Jesus that do that stuff. That's the argument. That's what I was wondering about. Yeah. The people, sort of like in politics right now, where, what are the people looking at? Well, are they looking at this uh, kind of intellectual kind of stuff we're talking about? Um, I can't answer that question, Helen. Those are, those are interesting thoughts, and I... I don't think we can even begin to address them from this context of what we're teaching today, uh, except to say that this is the way human beings behave. Um, we either try to transcend our desire to be special and to, ha- and to make sure we have the most and that we're safe, or we focus ourselves on trying to preserve ourselves and not worry about, you know, it's like, it's the human story. But what, yeah. Well, in, in a world rapidly becoming a global world where our old comforting lines and boundaries are being erased and eroded, that's a time where the response goes in one extreme or the other. Either we say, wow, we're becoming global, we have to learn to live without some of the old lines and boundaries that, that have made us so comfortable, or we go, we got to dig in even deeper, we got to protect our lines and boundaries. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's the nature of hu- human beings. Um, I, there's two, two short comments I want to say before closing, then I want to hear if you want to say anything. One is that I think one of the things that I understood 
about when we talk about this mythic cycle of history that when the early Christians take it on, they're taking it on as Jews, is why Christians might say, Jews, what's with you? <laughs> you know, we, look at our sacred history. Get on board. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I never quite understood that, like why they talk to me that way, why Christians, you know, but... Because you got at, stuck somewhere. We got stuck somewhere, right? Um, and in the, in the world of these sacred narratives, I never understood that so clearly before. When you're living in that mythos, that logic makes perfect sense. And makes you go, oh, what? Sense. right. And you've got to be able to step back from your meta-narrative and from your mythos, you know. Yeah. But within the mythos, it makes perfect sense to a Christian uh, that, that uh, you know, that there's something off with me, that I'm still, like, beating this old horse when, that, you know, that, that one is, like, galloped away ages ago. It's very, so that was a real insight for me. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to say, and that's very important to me, it's like I've never understood it like that before, is that, yes, we're talking about, as Stu was saying, underneath all of our narratives, there's one shared reality. Yes. And that's all true. What's interesting about this course, especially and That's a me, narrative also. <laughs> yeah, that's a narrative also that, that most of us like and are hoping is true. That's right. Um, and, uh, but what I was going to say is, for this particular class, we're focused on the similarities and differences between Judaism and Christianity. And I think it's, I think, I don't want to lose that particular thing with the universal, why can't we all get along, or we all, you know, which is that, we were actually sharing the same story. Yeah. And we're kissing cousins. <laughs> and, um, and now turn to your neighbor. And <laughs> but that, that this class, Judaism and Christianity, shared origins, different paths, I, we named it that way on purpose so that we could not just all go out with uh, the why can't we all get along, but so that we could all go out understanding better shared origins and different paths. And I wanted to reiterate that. And we're going to be exploring that again next week as we look at how we live our sacred narrative by following the cycle of the year in Judaism. And the day and, and the week. And the cycle and in Christianity. Um, which Matthew and I also talked at length about and found, you know, like, totally fascinating. So, do you want to add anything else? Or, or so we sing to end. Maybe you have something you want to say. I had something there for a second when you were talking. What was the last thing you said? <laughs> Liturgical year? Just before that. Um, oh, the differences. Right. One, you know, one way to engage this sort of interfaith, interreligious dialogue thing is to play the lowest common denominator game. That's where right. we find, you know, okay, we've got some basic ethics and basic sort of spiritual worldview stuff and we'll just settle there. And you remove all the rich particularity. And I think what we're talking about is we'd like to find a way forward where we can, yes, agree on the universal, but not in the process feel like we have to erase all the rich diversity and nuance and interesting, fun stuff, you know? Um, so that's, that's what I think we're trying to do. And I think we're, we're, we're doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bill, we're out of time. Is this really quick? It's... It doesn't even have to be for today. Could we discuss uh, Jews for Jesus? 
I think we have to. Uh, uh, you know, I, I maybe don't know, not. I don't know if either of us actually have much real experience with them, but I'd have to read up on them. Uh, you know? I have some experience, yeah. and it's a manifest. It's yet another manifest. I think I think we can actually put that in context here. It's another manifestation of Christians convinced that the Jews missed the boat, right? Living really tightly within their mythic narrative. That has its own internal logic and consistency, and within that framework, you know what they're doing makes sense. Makes sense to them. The Jews missed the boat. It's the the second coming isn't going to happen until those Jews who had this opportunity to join the new covenant finally get with the program. Right, and they're so we're doing is, them, and so they're doing us a favor. Yes. Right. By getting us to finally recognize the truth. And their weird insistence is that they they themselves are Jews. Right. often ethnically, who then become Christians, but then don't dissociate from their Jewish identity. You know, they don't then become Christians, they just, they're now Jews for Jesus, which is not the way most Christians have done it, where there was that differentiation, you know, and that's what makes us also frustrated. Right, well, but also, it's also quite cynically, so, Bill, so that's the basic idea. Because uh, they're sincere, in my experience. Right. What, what They've been well. What's, what's cynical about it is that they are well-funded by certain elements of the Christian right, who, whose mission is to convert the Jews, and they say, well, if we tell them that they don't have to stop being Jews right. and still accept Jesus, that's another way to, to keep, keep, keep converting them. You know, so I'm very cynical about it as well. Um, uh, this, a thought? A recommendation, because because you, because you could spend the rest of the year talking about the power of the myth and the power of mythology. It has a huge, huge influence on our values and our thinking, and you guys just touched upon it. I just want to recommend one book uh, coming because it's Valentine's Day. It's by a psychologist, um, uh, Robert Johnson. He wrote, oh. uh, he wrote the mythology of romance, and coming to Valentine's Day Saturday. And it's just incredible how we all fall into right. this mythology. I recommend anything by Robert Johnson. Yeah. Let's sing for a moment before we depart. Do you have a different something to take us out on? Um, actually, I did. Um, Seems like the energy is a little different now um, to do the same one. Uh, come on, people now. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't bring my guitar in. Uh, I'll bring it in next time. I forgot because I got here late. Let's sit. Let's breathe. The right thing will come up. So there is a chant coming to mind for me. Yes. Uh, the words are, ever-flowing, unchanging one as a name for God that contains both the, the changing, that God is the ever-changing, the ever-flowing, and that God is also the unchanging, the stable bedrock. And it's one that uh, you can harmonize and change the tempo and weave into it any way you want to after it's started. Ever flowing, maybe I need to go higher. Ever flowing, unchanging one. Ever flowing, unchanging.
And may we go out into the world held in the one who is ever-changing, ever-flowing through our lives, and who is the unchanging one, always holding all things. And thank you for sharing this with us. Sure. Okay, yeah, man.